We're Missio Phoenix, a community of God's people learning to live in God's ways for the sake of our city. Real quick background on Haggai, for those of you especially who maybe couldn't have been here last Sunday with us. Uh, it, we're spending four weeks in it. This is week number two. It's only two chapters long, but we are breaking down chapter two into three weeks. Uh, it's actually, I know that sounds weird. We did chapter one in one week, but it's actually the movement of how Haggai is told. Uh, there's four different movements of things that take place. Uh, six days, specific days, periods that are mentioned that kind of root it in history. And so the history is, it took place around 520 B.C., and it overlaps with the timeline with the books of Ezra and Nehemiah, if you're familiar with that story. So God's people uh, had been taken into captivity in Babylon, and the temple was destroyed where they worshiped in Jerusalem. And so there's a lot of grief and sorrow that came with that. But eventually the Persian Empire took control and Babylon was no longer in power. And Persia was a little more light-handed with the way they ruled. And they said, I don't care if you go back to Jerusalem. Sure, go ahead and rebuild your temple as long as you ultimately still bow down to us, as long as you're still paying our taxes, do whatever you want to do. And so they let them go back to Jerusalem and they start to rebuild the temple, but they get a little sidetracked along the way. There's some, some hiccups along the way. And what we find in Haggai is after they've started the foundation of the temple, they've stopped and they've now gone to putting their attention and their time, their energy and their money, their resources into building extravagant homes for themselves that that's the way they're going to rebuild Jerusalem. That's the way they're going to build their empire back up and the comfort of their own home now that they're in their own land is in these extravagant homes and houses for themselves. And so God comes to this man named Haggai and he starts speaking through him. And that's what's called a prophet. He says, go and tell my people to go back to the temple project, to rebuild my temple. Not because God needs a house built by human hands for him to come and live in, but because the temple was a place where God's glory and presence would come be among his people. And it was also the place where this people could come and make sacrifices so that they could be right again with God, so they could be near him. And so that was all last week. We talked about that. Uh, and then now what we are going to see in the beginning of chapter two is it turns from this word of kind of rebuke, like, hey, tell them to start going back to this temple project. They haven't been doing it faithfully. Uh, and now in chapter two, they've started, but they need some encouragement along the way. And so this word that God speaks through Haggai is not so much rebuke, but encouragement. It's, it's giving them a picture of what will be in the midst of them, kind of having a hard time struggling to see it. And so let's read Haggai two. I'm gonna read the first nine verses and then we'll pray. On the 21st day of the seventh month, the word of the Lord came through the prophet Haggai. Speak to Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, to the high priest Joshua, son of Jehozadak, and to the remnant of the people. Uh, remember, those two people we just heard are who should be the rightful king in Israel if they weren't controlled by Persia, and then also the high priest. So you have prophet, priest, king in the midst. And he says, speak to them and also to all my people who are left. Verse three. Who is left among you who saw this house in its former glory? How does it look to you now? Doesn't it seem to you like nothing by comparison? Even so, be strong, Zerubbabel. 
This is the Lord's declaration. Be strong, Joshua, son of Jehoshadak, high priest. Be strong, all you people of the land. This is the Lord's declaration. Work, for I am with you. The declaration of the Lord of armies. This is the promise I made to you when you came out of Egypt, and my spirit is present among you. Don't be afraid. For the Lord of armies says this, once more in a little while, I am going to shake the heavens and the earth, the sea and the dry land. I will shake all the nations so that the treasure of all the nations will come and I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord of armies. The silver and gold belong to me. This is the declaration of the Lord of armies. The final glory of this house will be greater than the first, says the Lord of armies. I will provide peace in this place. This is the declaration of the Lord of armies. Father, we pray that as we hear your word this morning, who you spoke through a man named Haggai, uh, such a foreign name to us, in a foreign land so many years ago. But God, you spoke through him to your people. Would you still this morning, even today, speak through your word to us, your people? God, would you help us to have eyes to see and ears to hear, minds that comprehend, and hearts that are transformed by the power of your word and the presence of your spirit to the glory of the Father. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. All right, I need a little help. There's a group project here. Name a sequel that was better than the first movie. Okay, that was a quick one. You like came locked and loaded with that. Because it's the only, it's the one and only. I still haven't seen it. I know, I know. Dark Knight. What was it? Bad Max. Oh, that was a good one. Wait, wait, which ones are the best? But you're going, you're going to books. Would you say the same for the movies? Yeah, I agree. I, all the movies are, yeah. <laughs> That's great. Okay, so we got some good, there's some good uh, answers here. I wasn't expecting that many. So Top Gun, Dark Knight, Harry Potter, Mad Max, Toy Story, anybody? What else? Who can name disappointing sequels? <laughs> Everything else that wasn't mentioned, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, man. The prequels? Nobody really does, and they're just pretending if they say they do. Yeah, no. yeah so sequels uh, kind of have this. You need some good ones, but it usually has this like expectation. It's not going to be as good as the first, right? Um, do you guys want to hear a sad story? So I think it's sad anyway. Uh, when, when I was in middle, going into middle school and I was starting with like sports and everything and I was joining the football team, my coach was like, oh, it's a preview because my older brother was like really athletic and really great at sports. And he's like, oh, we got, it. We got a preview coming on the team. This is gonna be great. And I gotta tell you, he was let down <laughs> because my brother is taller than me. He's faster than me. He's stronger than me. He's more coordinated than me just all around a better specimen of a human being when it comes to athletics. I, but I'd like to think, like, what I lacked in all those things, I made up for in heart. 
I don't know if my coach agrees with that or not, but, but there was this reality of like, oh, this isn't quite the same <laughs> as, as the 1.0 version, right? That's kind of what we see the people dealing with in Haggai 2 with the temple. So they go back to building the temple that God asked them to do. And there's some people who are there who are actually old enough to remember what the last temple looked like, the one that Solomon built. You know, David's son, when he was king at the time, the one who had like tons of riches and access to all kinds of wealth and resources, he did not spare any expense in building that temple, right? They used to have this thing called a tabernacle that was like the beta version of, of the temple that they had in David's time. They had long before David, as they were traveling through the wilderness before they got into the promised land. And David was like, God, I, I want to build a house for you. I have this palace and you have this tent that's tattered and worn through travel and through ages. And God's like, no, 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 no. I'll build a house for you. But don't worry, I'll let your, one of your offspring build a house for me. And so you see David's son Solomon come and he goes all out in building this extravagant temple. And you think, oh, that's, that's the one that God gave this message to David about of like, I'll let your, your offspring build a house for me and I'll build a house for you through him, a kingdom that will not fall. And you're like, oh, Solomon might be the dude. And then we find out Solomon has all kinds of problems and issues and his kingdom does end. And then in fact, even the temple he builds comes to an end. And so we hear that in Ezekiel, actually, chapters 8 through 11, you get the story of God's glory moving out of that first temple, moving on, and then eventually moving out of the city of Jerusalem. And then that kind of makes a way for uh, these other nations to come in and they destroy that temple. But you have people here now, this is about 70 years later, and they're getting to go back in and rebuild. And guess what? They don't have King Solomon they aren't in charge. They don't have access to wealth and riches. And so they get what they get from the Persian empire to go and rebuild. And they're looking at it and they're going, this does not, this like pales in comparison. The sequel is way worse than the original. This is not okay. And what's interesting is if you look at like the details and the instructions of given to build it, it actually is bigger than the first temple. And so it's not the, the size that's the problem. It's that it's lacking in extravagance. It's, it's not as ornate. It doesn't have all the fine minerals put into it. Uh, you hear God saying this, hey, the silver and the gold, they belong to me. And you get this idea like they don't have a whole lot of silver and gold to put into this temple for it to look really incredible, for it to shine. And rightfully, they're kind of mourning. And God knows this. He starts off with, hey, say to the people, those of you who, who are around for this, are you not thinking this right now? It's like God knows. He knows exactly what's on their minds and in their hearts. And so what he does, as a good counselor would do, is he recognizes what's going on inside of them and he addresses that. He doesn't just kind of sweep it off to the side or sweep it under the rug and then just kind of like divert their attention, like, hey, hey, look over here. This is going to be great, right? Like he goes, no, I know what's going on. Let's talk about it. Let's deal with this sense of loss and grief you have right now. If you were to read in Ezra 3, as, as you're hearing about this rebuilding project, there's a point in the story where it says that everybody is crying out and wailing 
and you can't tell who's rejoicing and who's mourning. And it's over the temple. They're seeing this thing get rebuilt. And there's some people who are rejoicing like, oh, we have a temple again. God is reestablishing us as a nation and as his people. But most of them are crying out. They're grieving. They're weeping loudly because they go, this is nothing like what it once was. And so God, God sees that and he enters into that felt reality for them. But then he starts speaking truth to it. And that's such a good like, reminder for us as we are called to shepherd one another, as we are called to be a kingdom of priests and to give good counsel, which oftentimes just means sitting with someone and keeping your mouth closed, uh, but, but to be able to sit in and enter into what they're experiencing and feeling and acknowledge that pain. And then we get to move on to good news and truth. And so that's what God does here. He starts speaking good news and truth to the very thing that they're experiencing. I know this doesn't look like what it should have looked like. If you were with us last week when we were talking about how God was saying, hey, stop building your own kingdoms and come build mine. Stop building your own houses, come build my house. We asked that question, like, what is it that you're building in your life? Right? What are you doing to try to build up a life for yourself? And it was this invitation into a moment of confession and repentance to say, oh, I've been trying to build up my career. I've been trying to build up my family. I've been trying to build up my status, my, my position, my place in this world. And God's saying, would you come and build my house, actually? Because that's the one that's going to last. And so there's this moment of kind of turning that we're invited into. And this week, it has a shift. Not so much, again, of that, hey, Let's, let's rebuke that and repent from that and turn. But for some of us, it's like, no, we, we've been trying to build into the kingdom. Some of us, we're, we're feeling like the Israelites in this day. We're trying to build into the kingdom. We're trying to do the things God has called us to do. And we look at it and it's not impressive. And we look at it and we go, is, is it even working? Is this worthwhile? Is this pleasing to God at all? Is this really what he wants from me? Maybe I'm failing him. Maybe I'm letting him down. And I think what we need to hear are these words that God speaks to the Israelites in this day. He comes to me and goes, I know what you see on the outside. And I know that doesn't look impressive to you. But just like God did with their first king, David, he's a God who looks on the inside. He's a God who looks at the heart. And he's a God who looks at what is actually happening underneath the surface. He's not a God who's impressed with status and stature. He's not a God who's impressed with wealth and resources. He says, the gold and silver is mine. Like he's reminding them, don't you think if I wanted gold and silver in this temple, I could have found a way to get it to you? I own it all. The gold and silver isn't the point. The extravagance is not the point. The impressiveness to other people is not the point. And so what is? What does God remind them? What does he show them? What does he tell them about this new temple? He says, hey, I am with you. Verse four, don't be afraid. Don't 
Don't mourn. Don't be dejected. Lift up your heads. Verse four, he says, I am with you. That's the whole point of the temple, remember? Rebuild the temple because that's where God's glory dwelt among his people. What's going to make this temple glorious? What's going to make it extravagant? What's going to make it something that would wow the nations, that would draw people in? Not just this building that when the other nations see this, man, they're going to know not to mess with us, right? But no, 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 God says, no, I'm actually going to draw the nations in toward it. It's God's presence, his glory dwelling there among them in the temple. God's glory dwelling in what you do in the work of your hands. God's glory dwelling in your presence as you sit with others. God's glory dwelling in anything you put yourself to is what makes that extravagant. It was interesting earlier uh, this week, a couple, two days, was it Friday? When did we do that MC leader training, Bethany? Friday? So two days ago, I was right. Friday, I got a text from a guy. He's a friend of mine. He's a pastor with another Soma church in San Diego. And I haven't seen him or talked to him in probably a couple of years, actually. And so it was kind of random that he just texted this to me. And then that evening, when we were doing a training for all of our MC leaders, uh, Kevin Platt, who pastors at Missio Mesa, read the same exact quote to our group there. And I was like, okay, I'm listening now, God. <laughs> like, I, I didn't even know. I was like, I don't, thanks for the text, man. That's cool. It's a good word, but I didn't really feel like I needed it. <laughs> you know? And then I heard it again. I was like, okay, maybe I do need it, right? And then I was, just this morning, I was like, I think we all need this. This is a quote that comes from one of Tim Keller's books called Every Good Endeavor. And it says this, everyone will be forgotten. Nothing we do will make any difference. And all good endeavors, even the best, will come to naught. You guys feeling encouraged right now? Happy Mother's Day. Let's sing a song and we'll, we'll get out of here. Unless there is God. If the God of the Bible exists and there is a true reality beneath and behind this one, and this life is not the only life, then every good endeavor, even the simplest ones pursued in response to God's calling can matter forever. So, let me reread that now, now that we have the full context, okay? Everyone will be forgotten. Nothing we do will make any difference and all good endeavors, even the best, will come to naught unless there is God. If the God of the Bible exists and there is a true reality beneath and behind this one and this life is not the only life, then every good endeavor, even the simplest ones, hear that? Like you think like, I gotta do something big for God. He doesn't, he doesn't need you to. He doesn't need you to build a house for him. Even the simplest ones pursued in response to God's calling can matter forever. You know, the interesting thing about this second temple that they built is actually, again, we, we referenced Malachi last week too. When you get to Malachi after it's been built for some time, you recognize God is actually very displeased with what's happening at the temple that the, the priests who are supposed to be 
bringing people closer to the Lord and, and doing the sacrifices, they're, they're being wicked and they're not obeying God and they're defiling his temple. And so you get this sense that like God's glory will no longer dwell there again. Like he's not pleased with it. And yet we're told right here in Haggai 2, God says, don't worry about what the building looks like on the outside. Don't worry about what the work of your hands look like to other people, whether it's impressive to them or not. My glory is going to reside there and that is what's going to be impressive. I will be with you. And you go, well, wait a second though. What happened though? Like God says, my glory will fill that temple even more than it did the first one. And you get to Malachi and you're like, Oh man, it didn't work. It didn't happen. You know what's fascinating is that's the very same temple, this temple they're rebuilding in Haggai, Ezra, Nehemiah. It's the very same temple Jesus went in and started teaching at when he was 12 years old. When his parents were like, hey, where's Jesus? Like they went on this pilgrimage to Jerusalem and they're leaving. And I, I don't know why it took them like, it was like a full day or something. And they're like, wait, where's Jesus? <laughs> oh no, we lost the son of God. Let's go back and look for him. And he's at the temple preaching and teaching at 12. The glory of God was there in that place. Patrick, I have a couple verses I want to throw up there on the screen to read for us here. This comes from Colossians 1, verses 15 through 20. And Paul wrote this about Jesus. He says, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For everything was created by him in heaven and on earth, the visible and the invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. That's the God who said, all the silver and gold belongs to me, guys. It's all mine. He is before all things, and by him all things hold together. He is also the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that he might come to have first place in everything. For God was pleased to have all his fullness tabernacle or dwell in him. And through him to reconcile everything to himself, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood, shed on the cross. This is the glory of God shown up in a normal human body. Scripture tells us he was nothing extravagant to look at on the outer appearance. No beauty to behold by your human eyes, but the fullness of God's glory dwelt in him. I got another verse you can throw up there. This is in Hebrews chapter one, verse three. We don't know who wrote this. The sun, speaking of Jesus, is the radiance of God's glory and the exact expression or another translation of that is the imprint, the exact representation, the fullness of his nature. Sustaining all things by his powerful word, after making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Jesus is the exact imprint of God. He is the fullness of his glory. And that glory walked into that temple. And so God's true to his word. Hey, my glory will fill this place greater than it did in the first one because he literally and physically 
walked into it. We're going to run through some more of this story. More, more verses up there. Thanks, Patrick. Hebrews 12. Again, we don't know uh, who wrote Hebrews, but you know, we're actually going to be going through a series in Hebrews pretty soon, uh, later in this year, which I'm really excited about because it talks a lot about the temple and priesthood. And so we're, we're doing Haggai right now, and we're learning about the rebuilding of the second temple. And Hebrews starts talking about the fullness of what that means. And so hear this, because it actually is going to quote from Haggai 2 right now, verse 6 in what we read. And so it starts by saying this, for you have not come to what could be touched. So it's telling God's people, you are entering into something that like, you can't like, build with your own hands, Okay. You've not come to what could be touched, to a blazing fire, to darkness, gloom, and storm, to the blast of a trumpet and the sound of words. Those who heard it begged that not another word be spoken to them, for they could not bear what was commanded. And this is going to explain what we're talking about, the context here. Think about Israel approaching Mount Sinai when God's glory comes. They were told, if even an animal touches the mountain, it must be stoned. The appearance was so terrifying that Moses said, I am trembling with fear. Instead, author of Hebrews is saying, you you haven't come to that place. Instead, you have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, to myriads of angels, a festive gathering, to the assembly of the firstborn whose names have been written in heaven, to a judge who is God of all, to the spirits of righteous people made perfect, and to Jesus the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood, which says better things than the blood of Abel. Remember Abel, Cain's brother? God said, his blood cries out to me. Well, Jesus' blood cries out saying a better word, not that you are condemned, but that you are made righteous. You can draw near without fear of touching and dying. You can draw near to this holy mountain of God. He says, see to it that you do not reject the one who speaks. For if they did not escape when they rejected him who warned them on earth, so you had people warning you, don't go near the mountain or you're going to die, right? And like if there are some people who still did. Even less will we if we turn away from him who warns us from heaven. His voice shook the earth at that time, but now he has promised yet once more, and this is the quote from Haggai 2.6, yet once more I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. I know this is a lot of weird imagery and you're like, What does he mean when he says that? He's going to explain right now. Uh, I say he as in the word of God. I don't know who wrote Hebrews. This expression, yet once more, indicates the removal of what can be shaken. That is, created things, so that what is not shaken might remain. Therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, let us be thankful. By it, we may serve God acceptably with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. Patrick, leave that one up for a second, okay? Uh, we, we are going to dive more into Hebrews later, okay? So that's a little taste, and you're like, oh, man, this is going to be weird. And it's, it is a lot. We'll explain more. We'll dive more into that later. But for now, what I want us to see is the author of Hebrews quoting Haggai 2, that God will shake the heavens and the earth. And the author is saying this, that, hey, there was a time when God's presence shook the earth, and people were afraid. But what God is doing now is he is shaking all the things that will not last out of the heavens and the earth. That's what he says. By saying once more, it means those things that, you can, that you can be shaken, they'll be done away with. 
And what will remain within heaven and earth are the things that cannot be shaken. What will remain are the things that are lasting. Thank God that we are invited into an everlasting kingdom, right? We are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. So let us be thankful. God's people were afraid at the temple that it didn't have his, it wasn't as glorious because they were afraid, well, then what are the nations going to do to us? They're going to see us as weak. And God's going, no, no, I'll draw the nations to you, but I'll draw them to come and be near my presence too. I'm bringing you into a better kingdom. And you don't have to be afraid because the blood of Jesus cries out a better story than the blood that you've spilled. The blood of Jesus says you can come. The sacrifice has been made and now you can draw near to the holy place of God. And when Jesus goes to the cross, we're told that there's a a curtain, a thick curtain, a veil in the temple that separated the people from the most inner holy of holies, what they called it, which is where God's glory was most prominent. We're told when Jesus died on that cross, that curtain, that veil tore and it fell. There was no more this separation. The priests would have to like, they would tie a rope to themselves to get into that place because if they did something wrong, they would fall down dead and someone would have to pull them back out. Like, no, no, now Jesus just opened it up for everybody without fear of death because you will now pass through death into the newness of life just as he did. The fullness of God's glory in Jesus now opening up a way for us to all draw near to his glory. And Jesus didn't look spectacular on the outside. And they thought he was going to come in and battle against Rome and overthrow an empire. And instead he died with nothing to his name. And so let that be encouragement to us. The things that we are doing and trying to step into the work of God that he's called us to, it may not look spectacular. We may not get applauded for it. It it may... We may stay like a community of a handful of people in this room. Are you okay with that? Don't be okay with not like sharing the good news with other people who need to hear it and welcome, inviting them in. But like, if it doesn't work the way we think it should look, God's going, don't worry about what it looks like on the outside. My glory, my presence is with you. I am with you. I think I have another verse I want to throw up there, Patrick. How many more did I put up there? Good, okay. I thought we were ending. I want to make sure. This is the picture we get of the fullness of dwelling with God's glory one day. In Revelation 21, John said he saw the holy city, the one that we just heard about in Hebrews, the new Jerusalem, the city coming down from heaven to earth. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared like a bride adorned for her husband. And then I heard a loud voice from the throne. Look, God's dwelling. And again, this word here is the same as tabernacle. God's tabernacle. His temple where his glory resides. God's dwelling is with humanity and he will live with them. They will be his people and God himself will be with them and will be their God. The fullness of God's glory dwelling in a human, Jesus who died and rose again and now has authority over all things, all the silver, all the gold, all the stuff in heaven and on earth, all the things you can see and not see, 
all belongs to him and he will be with us for eternity. What a glorious day that'll be. But you know, in the meantime, until then, his very spirit is here present with you now. What, what has he called you to partner with him in? It may look small, it may look meager, but if he is with you, it will have lasting eternal impact. Amen?